The podcast you are about to listen to is not a medical podcast, nor is it designed to diagnose a condition. While there are medical experts on this show, any questions regarding medical care or concern should be directed to a primary care physician. The team at Invax is dedicated to delivering new personalized immunotherapy approaches to improve outcomes for people living with glioblastoma and other solid tumors. Leveraging decades of validated research and technologies, Invax's unique platform is designed to capture a tumor's full antigen signature and use it to stimulate a patient's immune system against remaining tumor cells. Invax is currently recruiting for a randomized phase 2b clinical trial of IGV-001 in newly diagnosed glioblastoma patients. Learn more about this Phase 2b trial at imvax.com or clinicaltrials.gov. Imvax, advancing a new approach to personalized cancer immunotherapy. Welcome to Game on Glio a podcast that tells the stories of brain cancer warriors, clinicians, medical experts, and those in the grief and loss community. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. This season, you will hear unique brain cancer and grief and loss stories, as well as my own journey through grief and loss. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio, or Instagram and YouTube at Game on Glio Podcast. You can also visit and subscribe to our website at thegameongliopodcast.com for our blog, insights, clinical trials, and guest snapshots. Season 3 of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT MedTech and Gametile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. And by Invax, personalized whole tumor-derived immunotherapies. Learn more at invax.com. This episode is brought to you by Mimivax LLC. Developing immunotherapeutic vaccines and therapies for treatment of cancers such as glioblastoma. Learn more at mimivax.com. Welcome everybody to episode five of the Game on Glio podcast. Today we're going to talk about perfect moments. Now we all know that life, life is not perfect. We can't strive for perfection in life. But while life isn't perfect, it has perfect moments. What do I mean by that? The fact of the matter is, we can find most of what we're looking for by paying closer attention to the beauty and the moments and the gifts that we already have in front of us. Those beautiful moments that make us smile. We have a tendency to look past those things, to forget, to focus on being better, making more money, being more popular, But it's those beautiful little moments, the ones that sneak up on you. A quiet morning with the birds singing, sipping a cup of coffee on the patio on a gorgeous summer morning, learning a new skill, and doing it all on your own, figuring it out, someone special wanting your attention, laughing with family and friends, Those are the things that make our lives worthwhile. Those are those perfect moments that we have a tendency to look past, to not enjoy, or not pay attention to. And I was thinking about this as I was getting ready for today's episode. 
because we talk a lot about perfect moments with my guest, Mike Hugo, today, about his desire to create and to have and to pay attention to those little things in life as he battles glioblastoma. And I started thinking back to my time with my husband, Mike. I remember those moments where we would be going for a walk in our neighborhood, in our village. We have this beautiful, quaint village that we live in. And we would go for a beautiful walk on a summer evening after work or after dinner on a weekend or an early morning walk. And he and I loved going for walks, holding hands, walking the dogs, and just talking about our day, about life, about what we enjoyed that week. And I would get... I would get this feeling in the pit of my stomach, this warm, fuzzy, butterfly feeling. And that was that perfect moment. Those were those feelings. And it was this warm, cozy, peaceful feeling in like my gut, in my core. And I was so happy. And I would just smile and I would look at him. And in that one moment, I would think this is perfect. This is everything I need right here. That's it. Those are the moments that we need to hold on to, that we need to pay more attention to. I would get that feeling all the time with my husband. Sometimes he wouldn't even be with me. I would be driving down the road and you know how when you're driving down a beautiful street that's tree-lined and the trees are on both sides, they kind of create an umbrella. I love that. I don't know why, but I always loved streets like that where it creates this tunnel and you're driving through and the sun is just breaking through the trees and the beams are hitting the car and you've got a great song on the radio and you're just in that space. And I used to have so many of those moments. I'd be driving home or coming back to the house and I knew Mike would greet me. He was going to be there when I pulled in the driveway. He was my family, my world, my life. And I would dream and I would sit there and I would let it sink in. And I would get that warm, fuzzy butterfly feeling in the pit of my stomach. Or he and I would go for an evening cruise. As many of you know, my husband was a car guy and he used to race as a hobby on the weekends. And he had a couple of fast cars, race cars. And we would just go cruising on a gorgeous summer night or a great fall day. Windows down, no music on, just the sound of the engine, the exhaust roaring. I'd feel the wind on my face. He'd put his hand on the back of my neck as he's driving. We'd look at our neighborhood or the houses as we went by. We'd hear the crickets as we drove through. Those, those were perfect moments. Those are the moments we live for. It's that simple. I miss those moments. And every once in a while, especially when I have a cardinal that lands right on the windowsill or follows me around the backyard or sits in the tree as I'm sipping my coffee, I'll occasionally get that butterfly feeling in my stomach again. And I know it's his way of reminding me to hold on to those moments 
And that's exactly what our guest talks about today. He shares his wisdom and his view of this journey that he's on. And we're all on a journey, aren't we? We're all on a path that's leading somewhere. We just don't know where. But in the midst of that journey, we have these moments. And these moments are what life is made of. This is what makes life worthwhile. And our guest Mike shares his perfect moments, life lessons he's learning, wisdom he wants to impart on his daughters, and where this journey has taken him and how it's opened his eyes. He sits down with us next after a brief word from our sponsor. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gamma tile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, the neurosurgeon implants the tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go for weeks, you get a head start against the tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. For operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, and meningiomas, gamma tile therapy is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gamma tile therapy is FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gamma tile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gammatile.com. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a very special guest with us today, Mike Hugo. He is a district sales manager at Medtronic, and he works primarily with neurosurgical medical devices and spine medical devices, which is very fascinating to me. He is also a husband and a father living down south. So Mike, welcome to the show today. Thanks. I'm uh, glad to be here. I'm really curious. So for everybody who is listening, we will preface this by saying that Mike is a GBM warrior and is doing extremely, extremely well. Mike, let's go back to life before GBM. You've done quite a bit in your life and it's actually extremely impressive. (laughs) You've included things like skydiving. You've gotten your pilot's license. You have run significant marathons. Why are these things important to you? You know, not many people will jump out of a plane or get their pilot's license. Is this kind of a glimpse into how you see life? Yeah, yeah, I I think so. And, you know, it was never intentional, I guess, younger, but, you know, I always like a challenge, right? And and that challenge could be getting my skydiving license, getting my pilot's license, right? For me, I just like to, I guess, the cliche of live life to the fullest, even before I had this diagnosis, uh, someone say, hey, do you want to? And before they even got the rest of the sentence out of their mouth, <laughs> yeah, I'm in. <laughs> you know. And so I was always kind of game for anything. And to me personally, I've always felt this way is what struggle is the way and that having something to work towards mm-hmm. makes life fulfilling and enjoyable. Love that. So when you were diagnosed, take us back to that time period. How old were you when you were first diagnosed? How long have you been living with, surviving with GBM? And how did you find the diagnosis of glioblastoma? Yeah, so um, I've done 11 full Ironmans and you know, 30, 40 marathons, mm-hmm. if, if you include the Ironman marathon portion of it. Wow. You know, I was training for a half Ironman 
with uh, my friends and colleagues and family. And I wasn't feeling well. I just didn't, didn't feel myself. And then I went to a neurosurgery meeting at University of Miami that our company had sponsored and saw everyone there. And as I drove home, it's about an hour and a half drive. Mm-hmm. I uh, started to feel nauseous. And I was talking to one of my reps about some opportunities for sales. And all of a sudden I said, hey, I got to go. And I, I don't even remember a lot of this, but he said I was starting to like not make sense. And then the next thing you know, I woke up and the ambulance had broken me out of my vehicle. Oh my gosh. And I uh, was putting an IV in, into my arm. And I was actually fighting because I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea. The day before I was swimming two miles in the open ocean by myself, which such a blessing that the car accident, I had the collision avoidance in my car. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that's why my car stopped with relatively minimal, colli- I didn't hit anybody or anything like that. It just kind of, I think like Dukes of Hazzard style into the ditch. Oh my gosh. And then just stopped. Yeah. So I broke my back in a couple spots and I woke up and I saw the CT scan and being that I'm in the industry, as soon as I saw the brain tumor. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously I didn't think it was uh, glioblastoma, but I was able to text some surgeons that are close uh, personal friends and I think very highly of them. Mm -hmm. And I just said, hey, this is what's going on. And I kind of scrolled through and did a video. You got to get in here. So I went to University of Miami. Uh, We did the surgery. Even then, they didn't expect it to be glioblastoma until a couple weeks after where we got the, you know, pathology report back. Okay. And hit us like a ton of bricks. You know, we did not expect that. Yeah. So how old were you when you got the official diagnosis? I had just turned 37. So you just turned 37. I just turned 38. Uh, April 10th is my birthday. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been about 13 months. Okay. Obviously, things are going very well for being 13 months out. And yep. I have a lot of blessings. And I thank God every day and thank all the blessings I have and the people that have kind of worked together. So you had this car accident. So it, obviously, uh, there was a seizure. Um, that's kind of, that's what this is sounding like, is that you had had a seizure while you were driving, and that's what triggered the ambulance to show up and then going into the ER and then finding this. Yes, that's what happened. I, I had a seizure, lost consciousness. And then when I woke up in the hospital, I, I had another seizure. Mm-hmm. They were already had an IV, and they were standing over me. So they gave me immediately gave me anti-seizure medicine Mm -hmm. through the IV. And so it stopped it fairly quickly without kind of the negative side effects of the seizure. It's such a dark way to say it, but it really is a blessing that not only were you not swimming like you were the day before and that you did not hit anybody, that you got injured, it sounds like, but the injuries you were able to recover from, but thankfully nobody else was involved. But it's such a scary thing. I mean, to be driving like that and to have something like that take place. As you've gone through this process, I can only imagine when you say that, you know, you guys were just stunned, that completely shocked. I think it's fairly easy to say that that's pretty much the response of everybody that starts walking this journey. Mike and I were the same way. You know, we didn't, my, my husband, whose name is, uh, was also Michael, we didn't know what to say either. We were just completely shocked. You know, you're healthy, you're very active. As you've said, you've run triathlons and marathons and 37 years old, and this takes place. And that's part of the whole reason why we do this show is to navigate and advocate and educate people as to what this is and to be aware, to be proactive as much as you can be going into a situation like this. 
Ironically for you, there are also other parallels because your career focuses heavily in spine and neurosurgical medical devices. So you were kind of already heavily embedded in the neurology field from a medical device perspective when this took place. So as you said, when you saw the scans, the MRI, you knew immediately that looks like a tumor in the brain, not thinking GBM, but those parallels. Tell us a little bit about that. Do you feel like that prepared you for kind of what you were walking into? Yes and no. So let me explain a little bit. Number one is I know a lot of very influential, very respectable surgeons. I know a lot of people in the operating room world side of things. I know the technology that exists out there to give me the best possible outcomes to a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. Like I said, I, I could text somebody that was, you know, kind of the Tom Brady of these surgeries, regardless if it was glioblastoma, just regular low-grade glioma or whatever. But to be prepared <laughs> to take on a diagnosis that is such a devastating diagnosis, I guess what you say, it's, it was something that just hit me <laughs> like a truck. And so there was a lot of learning that both my wife and I had to do for the surgery is one side of things. Mm -hmm. But I would say almost a bigger aspect is the the neuro-oncology, the diet, the radiation, and the oncology care is maybe even arguably more important uh, overall. Mm -hmm. Luckily, my wife is just a whiz and she's a principal clinical research analyst for neurosurgery for uh, Medtronic. Okay. And so we had a lot of access to studies. And so at first, when we were kind of going down the neuro-oncology standpoint, when, before people kind of knew how much information we have access to in, in the contacts that we have, they would say things like, okay, Dr. Google, <laughs> you know, at this point now, they kind of ask in a, a different relationship, almost like a partnership, like, what are you guys thinking? How, and especially now that I'm far enough out that I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. Because I did have initial regrowth within three weeks. Of the surgery. Yeah. It was within the radiation field. So we just left it and we didn't go back and do surgery again. But having that immediate regrowth and then being 13 months out and being, you know, stable for now, Mm -hmm. people are kind of like, okay, maybe you guys have some, you know, been learning a little bit and doing the best steps possible. Maybe just luck of the draw. Some of it might be blessings. Some of it might be things we're doing. You're also using the Aptune device, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I use it. And because of the data that we have seen from it, and you know, again, my wife does most of the research and then I get the cliff note, so it's great. <laughs> uh, I knew that the survival rate for five years normally is 4 or 5% historically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But with the Optune, with their initial FDA study, it was like 13.8 or something like that percentage. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the 90% usage or higher, mm-hmm. that survival rate, and there's some people poke holes in that a little bit, um, but that survival rate was like 29%. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what a great time to be alive instead of 4 or 5% uh, opportunity to make it five years. I, I can have... 29%. Mm-hmm. And every day it's getting hopefully better and better. Mm-hmm. And so instead of 90% usage, I'm rolling in, I think the lowest I had was 96% usage. Okay. And um, it seems to be working well. 
And you're saying, when you say usage, you're saying you're using the device 96% of the time each day, 24 hours out of 24 hours a day. Yeah. Okay. Every time I take a battery out, I put a new battery in right away. Mm -hmm. It's, I live in South Florida, so that makes it a little bit more difficult. And I had to change my lifestyle a little bit. So like every couple of days we jump in the pool with the girls Mm -hmm. and we play around and have fun. But you know, it does change the way that um, you live. But I like to, I like to say, I don't have to use Optune. I don't have to do any of these things. I get to, right? Yep. I get to use Optune because that allows me more time with my family, mm-hmm. more time with my friends, more time doing different adventures. For those who are not aware or who have not listened to past episodes, the Optune device is actually something that you wear on your head. And this is what Mike is discussing. There are nodes, like little stickers that attach to your head, and there's a cap that goes over it. And you wear this device a good percentage of your day. And that's the device that Mike is using now. The gold standard is to get to five years. If you get beyond five years, the outlook is a a little bit better. Are you still doing treatment, uh, chemo treatment as well right now? Yeah. I went this morning and I... uh... I gave blood work. I start my next round of maintenance chemo, which will be round nine on uh, Wednesday. On Wednesday. Okay. And so you briefly mentioned that once you were diagnosed, there were a lot of changes in lifestyle that had to be made. One of those changes that you made was to your diet. Do you want to discuss that a little bit? Just what your diet kind of looks like for those who are looking at other options and things that they might need to do? And if you're willing to, I know you and I have discussed previously this idea of glutamine or glutamate in one's diet. Being exposed to that element, it's something that we find in a ton of different foods um, and different things. There was some research that was done and we, you and I previously discussed that and I just found it very, very fascinating that there could be some possible links or connections. So if you want to touch on that a little bit. Obviously, you got to talk to your doctor about any of these things, not, you know, this is what I'm doing and, you know, this is not necessarily my recommendations, all that disclaimer stuff. Yeah. We know that cancer in general is a metabolic disease. And we know anecdotally, when I got out of the hospital for my surgery, I lost a lot of muscle, lost a lot of weight. So the first thing I did is I took a big old gallon of, or pint, whatever, I don't know, of uh, Moose Tracks ice cream and I ate it. And the whole thing, right, over the course of like two days. (laughs) Now, three weeks later, I get my first MRI. And of course, I have a big old tumor back (laughs) right where my surgery was. Mm -hmm. That may have just happened normal without that. But outside of your blood-brain barrier, uh, you can really impact the potential growth of cancer by limiting the glucose that's available to it. When you get into the blood-brain barrier, it's a little bit harder to fully impact that. Mm -hmm. You know, I talked to a lot of long-term survivors and without fail, I think every single person that is has been a long-term survivor, they don't eat carbs. Or if they do, it's extremely low. We're mm-hmm. not talking sugar. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I think a lot of my friends that I think, you know, I assumed were very knowledgeable about nutrition. You know, they would buy me food at Whole Foods, like healthy foods. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, look, I eat this, you know, juice or whatever. No sugar. But then you look at the carbs and 56 grams of carbs or something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I can't eat that. Oh, yeah. So really limiting the carbs. Okay. I'm also on like a metformin to reduce the sugar that is in my bloodstream. Glucose is one. 
And that's one of the main fuels. Mm -hmm. The other thing that seems to be from the research and from what I've been is cholesterol. Mm -hmm. So some of the statins to reduce cholesterol, and that's where CoQ10 or torvastatin or whatever. And I think care oncology and some of these other people, that's some of the protocols that I've heard or seen. And then the other thing is glutamine, but that one's really hard to suppress or get out of your diet um, other than glutamine blockers, Mm -hmm. which I I don't take any currently, but some of the turkey tail teas Mm -hmm. and green teas are natural glutamine blockers, inhibitors. And there's studies that say, okay, drink green tea three times a day, it has antioxidants and it also takes down glutamine. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not an expert in that, but you know, if there's a hundred things that I can do and 95% of them are fairly easy on my body Mm -hmm. and fairly easy on changing my diet, changing my lifestyle, Mm -hmm. man, I'm going to do them because reducing my carbs, let's say I'm I'm using over the 90% usage on the Optune. So I'm 29% use uh, survival to five years. And then I don't eat carbs Mm -hmm. and I don't eat sugar. And that may take me to 35 or 40%. And then if I take cholesterol, lowering medicine, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to get every percentage possible to last as long as possible. And I always think of Freddie Mercury off of Queen. Yeah. Right. And he, he passed away, unfortunately, of AIDS. But had he lived one or two more months, they think he would be alive today. Kind of like a Magic Johnson. Yeah. Because as that technology kind of advanced, they were able to help, maybe not cure it, but you can have a great life and live with it. If you look at Magic Johnson and how many years he has had to his life now, that is the whole goal with brain cancers and GBM. You never know what's going to come down the pipeline next month, four months from now, six months from now. Like I said before, what we're seeing available now wasn't available three years ago. So this is the fight that everybody is in. And there are so many people that are pushing for advancements as quickly as possible because they know that there's a ticking clock. Painting that picture of the percentage for yourself, getting to 40%, giving yourself a 50% chance to get to that five-year mark, to get beyond the five-year mark, it paints a really good picture for others who might be walking this journey or for people who are listening that have no idea kind of what we battle against and what we're up against in dealing with glioblastoma. These are changes that you can make that as long as they're not causing stress in your lifestyle, they're worth a shot. It sounds like that's kind of the outlook and the path that you and and your wife, Vanessa, have taken with this is that it's not causing me stress. These are fairly simple lifts for me. So I'm going to do these things and see what works. And it seems like it's working. Yeah. Like I said, they call it carpet bombing. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you guys have all heard that. We're basically carpet bombing and throwing everything we can at this cancer Mm -hmm. to uh, increase that time. It seems to be working well, and I'm in a good spot right now, and I just hope that that keeps coming. We hope that too. After talking to you a number of times, it's been really amazing to see your strength and your vulnerability around your diagnosis. It's patients like you that are willing to share their story and really talk about certain raw aspects of this that help everybody else understand the challenges and the nuances of facing a disease like this. You've been quoted in the past in previous articles as saying, and if you don't mind me sharing, because it really just, it touches on who you are. And it's something that I actually want to hold on to for my my own personal journey right now. You said, we live a thousand tragedies in our minds. Not all of them come true. Most of them do not. The reality is that this one 
is probably going to come true, but I don't need to live that tragedy every single day. How do you maintain this outlook under these circumstances? What gives you that strength and that hope to think this way? It's, that's pretty profound and it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could take total credit for that. But I had a, I had a friend, you know, unfortunately, she lost her husband years ago to a different type of cancer. And she gave me this book and it's called The Daily Stoic. Mm-hmm. You know, I had my time where I just cried a lot, right? And cried all the things that I was going to miss and potentially, you know, not felt sorry for myself. And, you know, we have two paths that we can go. We can be like, all right, we're just, we're going to die and succumb to this fate that got, you know, that we have been given, Mm -hmm. or we're going to turn around and and make the most of the time and the blessings that we have. So in this book, The Daily Stoic, it's really nice. So like every single day is one paragraph or a sentence, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So this says, leisure without study is death, a tune for the living person. And that's uh, from Seneca in his moral letters. The quote that I had gotten, the thousand tragedies, I believe that was Marcus Aurelius. These things put into perspective, you know, our own mortality, like everyone dies, but not everyone lives. Right. Instead of just every day waking up and thinking about, oh my goodness, I'm going to die from glioblastoma. I wake up every day and I say, wow, I could have died in that car accident. How awesome is it that I get to be here today? How awesome is it that I get to take my kids to school? Mm. It's it's not easy, right? And and it's just like motivation is is like uh, kind of taking like a bath, right? You know, why do you read this daily stoic? You know, hence daily stoic every day. I'm like, well, it's the same reason you take a shower every day. <laughs> you need <to> smell <laughs> if you don't, right? Then you need to kind of refocus your your energy and, and your mindset. I'm sure your family and friends are very grateful for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little harder with Optune because I don't want to take it off for a minute. So I have like this whole like. IV pole system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's kind of going off track. But the, the point is that that book has really helped me. It's helped a lot of people. I've got that book for, you know, other people that ended up getting glioblastoma and reaching out to me. Mm-hmm. I had a hard time reading at first because of the surgery and because of the, the radiation was hitting right behind my optical nerve. Okay. But now the vision's pretty much back mm-hmm. for my left eye anyway. So it's an easy couple sentences, right? Right. It helped me get in a good mindset when I was heading down a dark path. That doesn't help anybody. This is a book that intrigued me when you and I first spoke about it. I decided to look it up and it's something that I'm actually getting for myself and for everybody who's listening. The Daily Stoic is by authors Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman. And I will have the information up on the site for this. If anybody wants to order it, you can get it off Amazon. It's really easy to find. It's a daily motivational book, but it gives you a lot of insight and a lot of practice on how to change our thinking. And a lot of what you're speaking to, Mike, really goes back to mindful meditation, mindfulness in our daily living. So many of us, whether through a significant diagnosis like brain cancer a significant loss, like losing somebody to brain cancer, like I did with Mike, people who have lost others to throughout the pandemic. I actually recently, not too long ago, lost a very good friend of mine who happened to be the wife of my late husband's best friend who died from cancer, and she was only 33 years old. 
So this book was really the timing of talking to you about it and hearing about it. It is, it's something that has to be practiced, right? You have to practice this day in and day out. It takes a lot of time and training to kind of get ourselves to a place where we can look at life a different way than we might've been used to looking at it before you deal with any type of massive battle or climbing a hill or tragedy or circumstance. And it sounds like this book has really done that for you and has really given you some pillars to lean on, a foundation um, in walking through this journey. I was so thankful for my friend. Obviously, she was healing, even though it had been years uh, since her, her husband has passed. And, you know, she just cared about me. And she's like, listen, I want you to have this. And, you know, I'm glad that I can kind of share that mindset shift. And hopefully other people can I guess embrace the calm and and embrace the daily living of hey I'm blessed to be here today's a good day mm-hmm. I'm glad that other people have kind of experienced it the same way that I have I'll be sharing quotes from it um, I just ordered a copy not too long ago so <laughs> I will be referencing that for everybody soon you also have a family that has obviously been massively supportive and a huge rock and pillar of strength for you your wife Vanessa and your daughters. You and I talked a little bit about how you've been writing letters for your girls for down the road. Can you tell us a little bit about this process? You know, why is doing this important to you and and how have your daughters and your and your wife given you strength during all of this? As a father, as a husband, when I woke up from my car accident and woke up from brain surgery, literally the only thing I cared about, I didn't care about me at all. I didn't care about anything other than how are my kids and my wife going to be without me? Mm. There's several aspects that you have to think about, right? And and number one is financially. Mm -hmm. My kids are, you know, they were five and six at the time. So we had uh, been big Dave Ramsey fans for a long time. So um, we were pretty, pretty well organized in that way. I had already, I had actually done a will and all that six months prior, went through that checkbox, a financial checkbox as much as I could being just turned 37. Mm -hmm. And the other aspect of that is what life lessons and what things can I do for both my my wife and my children and my mom and my dad and my friends, brother, sister. Am I doing everything I can to be, you know, (laughs) Tim McGraw song is like, I was a better father, better friend, friend that someone would want to have, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I kind of went through that stage of like financial, then I'm going through spiritual, emotional kind of checkbox with such young kids, it's hard, right? Yeah. So I can't tell my, you know, she now, she just turned eight. I can't tell my eight-year-old what it's going to be like to go to prom right now. Mm -hmm. I'm fighting to get there. Yeah. But since I can't do that, what are the things and how are the things, you know, how could I and what could I do? So when that time comes and she has a boyfriend that, that's a, not nice to her or they your first breakup or something like that, right? What life lessons could I, how could I build that strength in her so she understand that number one, she, that I love her and I care and support her, but not coddle her, right? So the, da- and the, the Daily Stoke book kind of helped me on that because there's a lot of lessons you know, I did birthday cards. So I have like for their 21st birthday, I have money in a birthday card and I wrote it out. Harry Potter books, right? So we read 
every night. And yeah. My eight-year-old's been reading them. So I wrote little notes in the beginning pages of Harry Potter, like how much I enjoyed listening to her kind of read these to me and how it, she has dyslexia. Okay. You know, she has dyslexia, but she's overcome that with tutoring and stuff like that. And how proud I am that she's worked through that. So I do those. But then I also do like videos of, uh, as I read this, the Daily Stoic about perseverance or some of these things. And I'll do a little video and I'll read it. And then I'll read uh, Ryan's 2023 version of it. Yep. And then I also say, hey, this is what I think of it. And this is a life lesson. Because how do you possibly have 30 years of life lessons covering every single scenario? You just, it's hard to think of, right? It's hard to think of in advance. Yeah. So I kind of cheat and, I, and I'll read a, a passage. I'm like, ooh, that'll be a good one. <laughs> so sometimes I do little video things and then I save them in folders on my phone for each of the children or my mom or my wife, mm-hmm. you know, the different things. And then from a, from a strength standpoint, first of all, I couldn't do this without my wife. And she helps me change my arrays. She does the research on, you know, hey, what's the best way to attack this? Hey, let's email this center because they have a clinical trial that we may want to get on in the future. Stuff like that, right? So, so she is absolutely, I can't even put into words how valuable and helpful it is that she's there for me. And my kids... We have been taking them to therapy. Okay. In this therapy, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing to do for anyone at any age, but we don't know how this is going to go. Right. Statistically, it's probably, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be tough to make it. So we're kind of, instead of waiting till it's a 911, kind of put them in this therapy talk so they, they can better understand their own emotions. They're just a well rounded individuals that can deal with. I mean, these are pretty serious life events that may or may not happen. I have to say, this is such a a proactive space to be in for yourself, specifically being the one walking, like the patient actually walking through this journey. It's extremely commendable, to say the least. I have to wonder, though, is it hard sometimes? For you to be thinking that far in advance or to put these videos together for your kids or to, I mean, it makes me think back to my late husband, Mike, and he had a very similar mindset to you. I'm trying to do this without getting too emotional about it, but he was always more worried about me. And how is she going to be, you know, is she going to be okay? How is this going to affect her? What's this going to do to her if anything happens? And that kills me that he may have thought that way or he worried about those things right up to the end. He was like that. For you walking through this, being as cognizant as you are of the journey that you guys are on, how are you maintaining your own emotional well-being while also trying to proactively think about taking care of your kids and your wife down the road if, and we're saying if, because I am a very very hopeful person and positive person and you are doing extremely well and I will want nothing more than that for you. But how do you take care of your own emotional well-being while going through this journey of trying to encapsulate life and impart wisdom for your girls and for your wife and your other family members down the road? Because that is, that's pretty heavy. It's beautiful and amazing. And there really aren't any words I can put into what it takes to do something like that. But I can't imagine that it's not hard for you. Yeah. So I, I, I started as an engineer in the world of uh, 
of things. And, and I say that because typically people can relate to the fact that engineers are more oriented in results-driven... Problem-solving. Yeah, problem-solving. Right? So my husband was an engineer as well. <laughs> yeah, so so exactly. So when I, when I woke up, I, instead of going into what was me is, you know, problem-solving mode. And problem is, how do I get my kids taken care of my wife here too. Mm-hmm. you know, knowing you can't control everything in the world. So that's where I'm a little bit probably less emotional and more just problem solution, problem solution. Mm-hmm. Now, let me tell you, for the longest time, I couldn't even listen to country music oh. <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's raw. Yeah. I would hear, you know, there's a song, That's My Job mm-hmm. uh, by Conway Twitty. Yep. <laughs> and all I think about you know, when you say, take care of your kids, take care of your wife, I just think of that. That's my job. That's what I do. And so I don't have another option other than let them down. Right. That's not something I'm going to do. That's not something I'm willing to do. I have my time where I get emotional and it's tough. But then I uh, wipe my tears, brush off and just say, hey, I'm here today. I'm not going to cry about something that may not even come true. And in the meantime, I'm going to do everything I can that's in my power to be here as long as I can to fill those shoes. I can tell you that being present with your family, putting down the phone, being present and playing sports or we play Jenga a lot, right? With the kids. Oh, I love that game. <laughs> Man, they're getting good. <laughs> I'm struggling. <laughs> you know, I still don't let them beat me in like Mario Kart or anything. Yeah, you're done. You really got to stick it to him somehow. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to take a, uh, I'll take a bullet, but I won't take the blue uh, turtle shell for you. <laughs> you know, so that's uh, just being present. Because if you're here for five years and you're, you know, and you give them those, those that time and that energy and, or you're here for 30 years and you give, and they get nothing, mm-hmm. you know, who's really had a more fulfilling, better life? Well, that's really well said. Again, this all comes back to mindfulness. This really is. It's about being mindfully aware of each and every single day. And I think you do that exceptionally well. But what would you want others to know that are dealing with brain cancer or for those who may have lost somebody significantly you know, to brain cancer? What do you want to tell other people that might be listening? First of all, there was a quote that I, I saw the other day and it was from a mathematician, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, after the... 45 years of his research and study, the best advice I can give people is to be a little bit kinder to each other. Mm-hmm. And so going through brain cancer and being the uh, caregiver, mm-hmm. it's freaking hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard. And I'm living a fairy tale for glioblastoma right now, right? And, and I realize that. So it's easy for me to think, oh, you know, this quote, positivity, right? And, and it is. And, and, I'm, and I always got to, because I think if you're positive, you live longer. I think you have a better life. There's all these great things. But I would also say that there's some grace that could be given on both sides. I do get frustrated easier than I did before. Mm-hmm. I'm on Kepra and, and obviously Kepra is known yeah. for Kepra rage, where you have a little bit more anxiety on little things that mean nothing. They mean nothing. I know it. You know, yep. I, I know they mean nothing. Yeah. I can alter the temperament a little bit. Yeah. Right. And so we have a code word with our family. 
Okay. So if I'm being extra grumpy, they're little kids. So you're like, hey, hey, we got to go. Get your shoes. We got to go to the bus stop. And I ask them one time. They don't listen. I ask them two times. They don't listen. And I'm like, you know, next thing you know, I ask them five times. And I'm ready to just give spankings, you know? <laughs> really frustrated. And I really shouldn't be, right? And, and uh, yes, anyone would be frustrated in that. But knowing what I'm going through and stuff like that, I probably wouldn't necessarily behave the same way. So for us to overcome that and for us knowing that, we have uh, code words. And so, like, for example, I tell the kids, hey, penguins, you know, that's our code word. Okay. And they know that I'm getting really upset, right? I'm getting mm-hmm. really frustrated and, and I don't intend to with them. But that is one way that we have been coping with that issue. Mm-hmm. And, and my wife had code, has code words for me. Right. If I'm being not nice, then she tells me, hey, and of course, I hate it when she tells me that, but she's always right. And I compose myself, Mm -hmm. re kind of process and say, okay, maybe I should not get so upset about X, Y, or Z, whatever that is. And again, that's me where I'm in a mental capacity where I can understand what's going on. But if you're a caregiver, and you know, then have a little grace because maybe they don't, I don't, maybe they don't know or understand that they're being angry or frustrated. And there's a lot of scenarios that that's not the same person that you maybe have married and loved. And you're still there. It's still you. They're, they're doing their best. Yes. I went through that, that journey with my mic as well, where not only the Capra, but initially the steroids that he had to be on really alters <laughs> quite a bit. You're still the same people. It's just that there are a lot of things pumping through your system and a lot of stress. And it sounds like that's really kind of at the heart of what you're talking about is that it, the dynamics, the family dynamics change extremely when going through a journey like this. And so having a bit of grace with each other, I love the idea of the code words. I think that's a great tip for everybody. Being able to help each other identify when moments are hard, leaning on each other and staying a strong family unit. These are all parts of this journey. This is what you learn as you walk through this journey. And they apply to all aspects of life. I think in any type of stressful situation, it can be easy to go at each other or to get exacerbated with each other or get fed up. And we have to be gracious and have a bit of grace and patience with each other. I think that's really well said. And I think that's a great tip for anybody who just needs some extra help or guidance as they're maybe beginning this process. I do want to head into rapid fire questions real quick before we wrap up. Okay. These are kind of more fun (laughs) questions that are just quick answers. First things that kind of come to your mind. So before your diagnosis, what was your favorite food? And after your diagnosis, what is your favorite food now? Ice cream, (laughs) like uh, Moose Tracks ice cream. Okay. And now it's a big old fat, juicy ribeye steak. Oh, both of those are great. Mm-hmm. One of your fondest memories as a teenager? I used to be a wrangler in British Columbia. And so I would, take, I would break horses, take people big game hunting and stuff like that. So I was up in the mountains and basically sleeping in a, not even a tent sometimes. And so that those adventures all summer long were kind of like call the wild kind of lifestyle. It was awesome. It was a blast. Totally did not see that answer coming. <laughs> That is definitely, (laughs) that's a great answer. 
could not picture that with you. So that that explains a lot, Mike. <laughs> Actually explains a lot. I love that answer. Were you scared the first time you skydived? First time, no. Because I was tandem with somebody else. I mean, I was a little scared and I'm a little bit afraid of heights, but not that much. Mm-hmm. But when I did it on my own, absolutely. Because they made you hold on to a mo- like monkey bars on, on the wing. Okay. And they had you look up and they're like, okay, let go. Oh. So, uh-uh. Like, no, you got to let go. And I was like, did uh-uh. they just push you out? <laughs> no, I, was, I climbed out on the wing and then like hanging on to like the monkey bars on the, on the wing. And I, it was really difficult for me to actually let go when I was diving by myself. Oh my gosh. My heart's actually racing a little bit faster right now as, as you're, I'm just picturing it. I don't think I could do it. Yeah. If I say the word magical, what does that mean to you? Adventurous. Adventures. Last. Do you consider life to be fragile or a gift? A gift. Perfect. And a lot of what you've said today actually describes that. Life really is a gift. And I think the education and the information that you and your wife have put together, the way that you reach out to people, your openness on talking about this journey, it teaches others and it's helping others. And it's showing others that no matter how hard the fight may be, it's a fight that can be won. It is a fight that is won daily. And you're a shining example of how to live through this and really live as light-filled and positively and magically as you possibly can on a daily basis. So I, I really appreciate your openness and you're willing to talk about some of the journey that you've been on with us today. I appreciate it. And you know, I'll be thinking of everybody out there that's, that's also going through this journey. And everybody's journey is different and they're in different places. And we're still just trying to figure it out. You know, By the end of this week, by Saturday, Sunday, you talk to me, I'm, gonna be, <laughs> I'm probably going to be pretty tired, you know? So, because uh, I got the chemo week. Yep. I feel for everybody and everyone's journey is different. And regardless, if you can be kind to another, one another and be as positive as you can, whether you live one day or 40 years, that's still a better way to live. I agree. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us on the show today. And for all of our listeners, we will be right back. Have you guys ever heard the phrase that we're not humans having a soulful experience, we're souls having a human experience? I truly believe that each of us are intimately intertwined to have unique journeys and experiences here on earth. The decisions that we make along the way, they shape our lives and create different opportunities for different destinies. All of the events that unfolded in Mike and Vanessa's lives, our guests today, the experiences that they had leading up to his diagnosis, the work that each of them has done, led them to a place where they knew what steps they needed to take, they knew what they would need to do when he was diagnosed, and have brought them to the place that they're at now. I don't want to say it's perfectly preparing them, but both of them had intimate knowledge of the field of neurology, of clinical research, clinical trials, medical tech that poised them and made them aware and cognizant of specific decisions that would need to be made out of the gate. Why am I bringing this up? Because I truly believe that even within our perfect moments in this life, those moments that we treasure 
and cherish and hold on to, the moments that we need to be aware of when they happen. We also need to feel our way through our experiences because they all lead us somewhere and sometimes they're not leading us to something good. But when we work through those difficult experiences, we see good on the other side of it. When Mike and I met, I had almost given up on finding true love. And for some of you out there, you may not believe in soulmates or true love, but I always have. I always did. And I believed that he was out there. So many things needed to happen in order for Mike and I to meet. We grew up in different cities. We went to college in different cities. It wasn't until a random occurrence with a mutual friend that finally brought us into each other's orbit. And then when we finally did get together, it wasn't until he proposed that we realized how intimately intertwined our family's lives really were. After he proposed, we went down to Florida to visit some family of his, and we were telling them the story of the proposal. And so naturally, questions of my family, family's history, background, heritage, culture, relatives in Italy, all of that came up. And his aunt, who married into his family, asked where my mother grew up. And so I'm telling them. And she goes, is your mother's name Karen? And I said, yes, it is. And then she starts talking about my grandparents and where they grew up and their house and details, information she shouldn't have had. And when I asked her how she knew all of this, she explained that it was because my mother and her brother were high school sweethearts. Our minds were blown. We couldn't believe it. She then shared an intimate nickname that nobody, nobody would know. So we call my mom and we say this nickname to her and she whispers, how do you know that nickname? And so I tell her that Mike's aunt, who's sitting right across from me, happens to be the sister of her high school boyfriend. And she's like, you've got to be kidding. And there's all this excitement and energy. And they get on the phone with each other and they're sharing stories and reminiscing. And then we get home and we start planning the wedding. And we go to my cousins to look over invitations because they owned a binding business and an invitation business. And so we're flipping through invitations to see if there's anything that we like. And they're talking to Mike. And find out that his family, his uncle, the same uncle we had just visited, who had owned a printing business, was a partner, a business partner of theirs. They worked together. They actually had just had dinner with them not long before that. They were intimately acquainted with each other, and we could not believe the connections between our families. And then we find out that his grandfather, on his dad's side of the family, the other side of his family, also grew up not far from where my mother's family grew up. And when we were little, we used to play at the same playground out there when we would go to visit, that we used to play at the same playground. Didn't even realize it. We were meant to meet and we were meant to be together. Had we made any other decisions in our lives, had I gone to college anywhere else, had my sports or athletic career gone in a different direction, had he decided to study somewhere else other than the University of Buffalo? Had I moved to New York like I was supposed to three weeks before we finally met? Had any of those things occurred, we never would have met. And the journey that we took, the 20 years that we had together, were the most amazing and beautiful 20 years. And even though he is no longer here on this earth, that soulful experience 
that stays with us. And his soul is waiting. It's up there. And had we not gone through the journey that we went through, I wouldn't be here doing the work that I'm doing now. I wouldn't have met people like Mike Hugo and Greg Link and DJ Stewart and Harry LaRusso and Tara over in Ireland, Laura Dill, Colin Gurner, so many people that I've met in this community. Matt from Head for the Cure, Lance and Chris Schuler, amazing, beautiful, wonderful souls that are teaching me, that are continuing to teach me. The work that I do wouldn't have happened had I not been with Mike, met Mike, fallen in love with Mike, and gone through his diagnosis and his death. And that is not an easy thing for me to say, but it is another one of those perfect moments because we have to value the the space that we're in in the moment that we're in. And I value all of you. These conversations that I have with you, they teach me so much. My soul is having an amazing experience and it is a bit painful, but it is still an experience. And that's what we need to take away from this. I hope all of you enjoyed our conversations today and our thoughts and our takeaways from today's conversation. We have so much more ahead of us. So stay with us and join us for our next episode. Until next time, thank you. This episode was brought to you by Mimivax LLC, developing immunotherapeutic vaccines and therapies for treatment of cancers such as glioblastoma. Learn more at Mimivax.com. You've been listening to the Game on Glio podcast, the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories of those walking the journey of brain cancers such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. Like what you hear? Share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio podcast, Facebook at Game on Glio, or visit our website or YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.